0: Their eyes grew wide, wider than they ever had been before. Their pupils began to dilate as the sweat began to bead across their brow. All of a sudden, things had gotten real, and they had gotten real, really fast. They didn't quite expect it, at least not in this way. But in this moment, everything their lives were built around came crashing thunderously down around them. They looked as if death had just taken hold of them, gripped them all at once. It felt instant. And yet at the same moment, it felt as if time itself had slammed to a screeching halt. It was like when you see an accident coming and everything slows down around you, but not quite enough to where you can avoid the impending accident. All at once they felt that excruciating pit forming deep in their stomach. You know, the one it's the one where it feels like your heart is attached to 10,000 pounds of weighted guilt and it's hanging on by a string. And then all of a sudden that string gets cut. They gasp deeply as if it were the first time they noticed how heavy oxygen could be. They felt a rushing, uncomfortable tingle wave over their bodies as every hair on their arms stood on end. Run, he whispered. He grabbed her by the hand and they ran as fast as their bare feet could carry them faster and faster and faster, not concerned with what their feet might step on or trip over. They just kept going. The cool breeze of the night wasn't enough to cool their bodies or stop it from perspiring as much as it was. It wasn't the distance or the speed at which they were running that caused them to sweat so much. It was the fear that was gripping them. Finally, when they couldn't run anymore, they stopped, breathing heavily now. They weren't quite sure what they should do. They had made the world's biggest mistake. They knew the consequences would be severe, but they weren't interested in sticking around to find out just how severe they would be. They found themselves feeling out of place, like they stuck out. And no longer fit in. They wanted to do anything they could to just blend in. They wanted to feel comfortable again in their surroundings. When they couldn't run any further, they finally stopped. They needed to catch their breath before continuing. Quickly, take this. We can hide behind these, she told him. They began to sew leaves together, trying desperately to cover up. They were so uncomfortable, but maybe they could cover the guilt, the shame, the mistake, and everything would be okay. They knew that there could be no sin that separated or could be in the presence between them and God. The perfect God who created them. So they sought comfort behind leaves. Hoping as hard as they could to cover on their own the sin that would separate them from God. Where are you? The question came from the God who is coming near. What once was a voice that brought with it extreme comfort. Was now the very thing that they were ashamed to be in the presence of. Where are you? It's a question God asked in the Garden of Eden. To Adam and Eve. And it's a question they tried to avoid. Seeking refuge and comfort behind a pile of leaves. And among the trees. And it's the same question we often try to run from as well. In moments when we feel ashamed or broken down or defeated or hurting. Where are you? God asks that question on a regular basis of us, doesn't he? Sometimes uh, I think about it and, and it dawns on me in certain moments, you know, in certain moments, it occurs to me that perhaps one of the reasons that God gives us children is to show us a little bit more about himself and his relationship to us. For those of you who are parents or maybe your kids are starting to have kids you kind of see this more and more as it unfolds, don't you? I mean, you look at your kids and and various moments, various things that they do. It just highlights who God is. I have two kids now. Uh, My oldest is uh, two years old and my youngest is 10 months old. And watching the two of them is an incredible insight into my relationship with God. And I get a little bit more about the way that he looks at me, you know? When my oldest was younger... um, she would be crawling around and she grab certain things that we didn't want her to have. And, and as any, you know, young child does the first thing they do when they grab things is stick it right in their mouth. And there's a variety of things that you don't realize are on your carpet until you have a toddler on your carpet, you know? <laughs> And you're like, I don't even know what that is, nor do I know why you would stick that in your mouth, but there you are. And so, uh, it started off as kind of a game, you know, like she would grab things and she'd go to stick them in her mouth. And so I grab it out of her hand and to avoid, you know, her melting down or having death occur via emotion. Um, I would grab it out of her hand and I turned it into a game, you know, I would grab it and I'd stick it behind my back and I would say, where'd it go? And, and eventually she caught on and she was like, where'd it go? And so this was the game that we played to avoid a meltdown. And and now that she's a little bit older, she likes to play this game on her own. So she'll take a sheet on our bed or something and cover her face up and say where to go. And, or she'll take a towel. Sometimes she'll take her hands and cover her own face and say where to go. And she loves playing this game. And this game is hilarious and it is awesome the first three times. <laughs> After the 40 second time, it's not quite as amusing to me, but she still gets the biggest kick out of it. As a parent, you understand that that game is fun when your child is right in front of you, you know, but all of a sudden when you're sitting in the living room and you're watching TV or maybe you're cooking dinner, you do whatever you have to do. And you notice that you haven't heard your child in a while and it clicks in your head that perhaps something is wrong or perhaps something is really wrong. And so you begin to look around the house for them, and you call out to them the way that God called out to Adam and Eve in the garden that one night. And you say, where are you? Where are you? And you hope that you hear right away some sort of rustling or noise or, or perhaps a response from your child saying, I'm right here. But oftentimes, or at least occasionally you get the same response that God did, which is nothing. You cry out, where are you? And you don't hear anything back. And at first you think, well, they're just, you know, steeped in their own world, or maybe they didn't hear me. And all of a sudden those thoughts start creeping in, you know? the ones that really create that pit in your stomach. And I think sometimes we take for granted the fact that we know that God is all-knowing, we know that he's omniscient. And we think, well, being an omniscient God, being an all-knowing God, that means that when he asked that question, he already knew the answer. And certainly God knew where Adam and Eve was. But at the same time as a father, when you cry out to your kids and you say, where are you? And you get no response. You can't help but be concerned. I don't think God was immune to that initial feeling necessarily. As a father, you can't help but be concerned when you cry out and you look for your kids and you get no response. See, Adam and Eve were seeking comfort in someone else for the first time in their lives. They didn't go running to their creator. They didn't go running to their God for something. They ran away from him. They circumvented the Lord and they looked for things that could cover themselves up, feeling ashamed and naked and laid bare. They didn't want to face him. And so they sought their comfort in some other manner trying to create that barrier between them and a perfect God, hoping that if they did a good enough job, perhaps they'd still be acceptable to him. As I play that game with my daughter, it it occurs to me, being a dad now, I understand a little bit more about who God is. You know, my daughter gets hurt sometimes. It's, it's interesting to watch her because she'll, she'll get hurt and, and often if it's a bad enough hurt, she'll just sit right there. She won't move, you know? She'll just sit there in a, a puddle of tears just crying and like her arms will be up, you know, waiting. Cause she knows that dad's gonna come and he's gonna pick her up. And, and what's really interesting is now that she's older and she's discovered certain, um, we'll call them homeopathic remedies, uh, like popsicles or ice, uh, she cries for them no matter what the injury is, you know? She could perhaps bump herself against a very hard corner of a pillow and uh, all of a sudden she needs ice to remedy this, this boo-boo. And so she'll, she'll be crying and I'll pick her up. And in my mind, I'm thinking the only thing that my child needs right now is the comfort of her loving father and the arms of her dad. And I wrap her up in my arms and I think if I just hold her long enough, she's going to be okay. And then I hear those words, ice ice. And she can't quite say popsicle. And so she says some other variation of that word, which I happen to think is the cutest thing in the world. And she calls it a -a puckalo. And so she'll sit there in my arms, ice (laughs) puckalo. And it's hard not to laugh at your child when they're injured and they say things like that, you know, but at the same time, it causes me to question, why are you looking for these things when I'm right here? Why do you want a, a popsicle? Why do you want ice? Why do you want all these other things when I'm right here? And I can just hold you and I want to make it better. And I wonder sometimes if God asks that same thing of us. Why are you looking at all these other things? Why are you going over here and over there and doing all these things when I'm right here? The fill in the blank in front of you is this, and it puts it so simply and it puts it so perfectly, but it's this God desires to be our comfort. God desires to be our comfort. Now we have to get something straight right off the bat. We need to clear the air once and for all, don't we? Because God never promises that our lives are going to be comfortable. God never once in his word says, hey, if you follow me, everything's going to be Okay. If you follow me, if you become a Christian and believe in me, then I will take all your worries and all your fears and I will just vanish them from the face of the earth and your life will be nothing but comfortable from here on out. That never happened. In fact, God says that life is going to be difficult. Life's going to be tough. It's going to kick you. And the truth is, if you follow me, it's certainly not going to get any easier If you follow me, life's going to be exceptionally hard. Why? Because they hated me. And if they hate me, they're going to hate you. So let's just clear the air. God never promised comfort. God simply said that, that life is hard and that life is uncomfortable. But God has said that he desires to be our comfort. When life is uncomfortable, when life is difficult, when life kicks you while you're down, God promises that he will not miss an opportunity to be your comforter. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 51 as we begin to look at the passage for today. Isaiah chapter 51 comes just before Isaiah 52. I hope that helped you find it. Just after Isaiah 50, sandwiched right in there. Some background that you need to understand about what we're studying this morning is this. Israel has been placed into Babylonian captivity. They were living in a foreign country, defeated and beat down by their captors. In this moment, the Lord speaks through his prophet, a message to his people. We're going to break this down as we go through it. Verse 1, Isaiah chapter 51. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. And right away, we see something important for us to understand. The first eight verses in Isaiah 51 have three prophecies held in them. The first one calls to those who pursue righteousness. In other words, God is saying, listen, you who pursue me in spite of everyone else around you, letting go. God is speaking to those who are pursuing his righteousness, even though many others around them have let go of it. So you need to understand something about being in captivity, During war, when you're captured, you're immediately faced with one of two choices. I don't know this from personal experience, but just from seeing kind of the trends that happen when people are in captivity. And you often hear two different stories coming out of those who have survived captivity. And the two choices that are often faced are these. The first one is when you're captured, you choose to cling on to the roots You take hold of everything that makes you, you, your identity, and you grip it so tightly that nothing can strip it from you. In your mind, you realize that everything else has been taken, your home, your valuables, your possessions, your family, your loved ones, your land, your country, your comfort, your decisions, your choices, all that stuff has been removed from you. And yet the only thing that you have left is what makes you, you. Your allegiances, your patriotism, your beliefs, your morals, your standards, your faith. That's what you have left. And the first option is I cling even tighter to it because it's all I have. And I can't bear the thought of letting go of everything, especially these things. The second choice is exactly the opposite. The second choice is you look at everything else that has been taken away from you And you decide in that moment that it's not worth fighting for anymore. You understand that in this time, being a captive, being captured, it's not worth fighting to hold on to anything. So you just let go of everything. You figure that it's better to blend in. It's better to adapt. It's better to meld. It's better to go with the flow. And so you let go of your identity. You let go of your beliefs. You let go of your faith. You let go of your patriotism in hopes That if you just blend in, if you go with the flow, if you match the status quo, then everything else will fall into place and you can build a new life and everything will be okay. And this is precisely where the Israelite people were finding many of themselves. You see, some had chosen to just kind of give up and blend in while there was still others who decided that their faith was too important to let go of. And they clung to it even tighter. And right away in this passage, God speaks directly to them. He says, to those of you who have not given up the pursuit of righteousness. If you have clung to me, God says, and lived out my words, then hear and know this. He continues, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him that I might bless him and multiply him. Now we all remember the story of Abraham, right? Called from the land of Ur next to the Chaldeans. God called to Abraham uh, back when he was named Abram and his wife Sarai. And they were 75 years old. And God brought Abram and his family away from their extended family out of the land of Ur. And he said, follow me. I'm going to take you to a land that I will give to you. And I'm going to make you the father of many nations I will multiply you. So at 75 years old, Abram and his wife, Sarai, they leave their land and they go and they start a new life following God's instructions. And then they wait 24 years, 24 years later, God shows up again. And he says, I am here to establish my covenant with you. I'm going to give you a child. And at 99 years old, they couldn't help but find humor in that conversation. And they laughed a little bit and they said, do you, are, I mean, we're old. <laughs> we're like really old. I mean, way back, maybe we had some interest, but I can't chase a toddler. Are you kidding? And God says, no, you're going to have a child. Get ready because it's coming. And a year later, they had their first child. And thus began the beginning of that covenant with Abraham and his wife, Sarah. God says this to those who have clung to their identity as God's people and are still pursuing his word. He says, remember how you got here. I took a man well into his ears and from him brought about you. See, it's hard enough to be surrounded by those who don't value your relationship with God. It's even harder when the people that do surround you don't like you for it. Or don't support you because of your values in God. Because of your relationship with God. And yet it's harder still when the people who are supposed to support you, supposed to encourage you, and supposed to believe what you do, have walked away from it. And there you are, clinging to your roots when everyone else has walked away. And this is where God calls back to those people who have remained faithful in him. And with comfort, he says, I chose one man out of the entire world. And from him, I brought about a nation. I didn't forget about him even when he felt like I had. And I certainly have not forgotten about you. How often have we simply felt as if God has forgotten about us? How often have we had those thoughts where we go throughout life and we think, God, I'm doing everything right. I'm trying to live by your word. I go to church on a regular basis. I volunteer in the children's ministry. Uh, When the tithing plate passes me by, I I put something in it and I do all these things. And yet I feel so forgotten by you. I feel like if you really cared, if you really remembered me, if you really knew who I was, then then this wouldn't keep happening. This pain would be removed. This stuff that I've been praying for would have been answered by now. But I just feel like you've forgotten me. Why? And it's to you that God says, I can trace you back to the first person who started you. I can trace you all the way back to that man. I didn't forget about him. And I certainly haven't forgotten about you. continues in verse three for the Lord comforts Zion. In other words, his people, he comforts all her waste places. In some versions it says her ruins and makes her wilderness like Eden, her deserts, like the garden of the Lord, joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. See, you have to understand something about what happened here. See their city had not just been destroyed and sacked, but unlike when the Assyrians took over the first time, When the Babylonians took over, they didn't bring another people group in. See, years before the Babylonians attacked Jerusalem, the Assyrians did it. And when they came in, they attacked Jerusalem, they overtook it. And when they were about to leave, they said, okay, bring in all the other captives. And they let an entire group of people, completely unrelated to God's people, come in and live in Jerusalem. They said, this will be a side that we have taken you over. We're going to make all of our captives live together in this city. When Babylon came and did it later, they came in, they completely destroyed the city. They took all the men and the young men and they killed them, left their bodies in the street and said, everyone who's left, you're coming with us. And they led everyone who was alive out of the city, left the city, a pile of burning rubble with corpses lying around as a sign that this is what we can do. And that's what they did to God's city. So they leave that there and here God speaks to that. And he says, for the Lord comfort Zion, he comforts his people. He comforts all her waste places, referencing back the city that they had left, that each day that went by the Israelites knew that city was just still burning. It was still a pile of rubble. It still had the bodies of their people lying in it. And God says, I comfort your waste places. And I make her wildernesses like Eden, her deserts like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. God is saying in the driest, most desperate wilderness of your existence, if you are pursuing me, you will find a garden of comfort. And he continues, give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out for me and I will set my justice for a light to all the people's. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me and for my arm. They wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath for the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever and my righteousness will never be dismayed. In the second prophecy, God calls to all his people saying, wake up. Stop living like you don't know what happens in Jerusalem affects the entire world. I told you that you would be my people and from you, the world would know my name. Not only that, but I'm telling you now that because of you, justice will be a light for all peoples. Do we understand that? Do we realize that when people look at us in this church, when they look at believers, what they are seeing is God's justice as a light to all people. We are the very reflection of Jesus Christ. When people look at us, they understand we represent the very nature of God. I think a lot of times we forget about that, don't we? See, it's easy when we're in here. When we're in here and we have a great band playing, we throw the words up on the screen. That way no one feels out of place because they don't know the songs. And we raise our hands like everyone else next to us. When the offering basket passes us by, we give a little nod. We clap, we sing, we shake hands. We greet everyone in here, and then at the end of service, we walk through those doors out to our parking lot. We hop in our car, get down Highway 65, and cut off the slow guy who's holding us back from getting to lunch sooner. God forbid we have to wait at Lucille's for our lunch. It might be packed. We go to our workplaces, and we treat our coworkers or the office secretary like everyone else does. Well, because that's just normal, and it's what we do. We get stressed out at work. We get stressed out in other environments and we come home and we take it out on our families. Why? Because it makes us feel better, if even for a moment. And gosh darn it, we deserve to feel better after the stress that we've endured. So we take it out on our kids and our spouses. And we go through and we forget that we are called to be the justice that reflects the very nature of God. That we are the very embodiment of Jesus Christ out here. In this world, because when people look at you who don't have Christ, they are drawing nearer to their heavenly father because we carry him with us. And I love what it says in verse five. God foreshadows Christ when he says, my righteousness draws near my salvation has gone out. Because that's not just a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, but that is a foreshadowing of who we are with Christ. See, we have Christ in us. And when God says that that my righteousness draws near and my salvation has gone out, he's talking about us. We are his righteousness now and we are drawing near to those who do not have it. We are the embodiment of Christ's salvation, drawing near to other people, going out into the world from this building and into the places where others do not know him. And we are carrying him with us. And it's time we understand that and start living that way. And verse six says, lift up your eyes to the heavens and look to the earth beneath for the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. In other words, it's saying this, if you are living as if this world, this life and this moment are all there is, then prepare to vanish with it. And he finishes and says, but my salvation will be forever and my righteousness will never be dismayed. In the end, when all else is gone, there are two things that are for sure. God's salvation and his righteousness. And that is a great comfort for us. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revelings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever and my salvation to all generations. Okay, time for a confession. I love snow cones. I love them so much. Now, I've had the opportunity in my life uh, to travel to probably the most beautiful state this country has, and that's the state of Hawaii. Hawaii. And um, I've been there twice, once for my honeymoon and once with some family. And both times we went to Oahu. And if you've ever been to Oahu, you understand that on uh, kind of the backside of the island away from Honolulu is this little town called Haleiwa. And over there, there's some great beaches that not a ton of people know about. But more importantly than that is this little town. And inside this little town is this little general store, kind of a hole in the wall place called Matsumoto's. Now, Matsumoto's uh, sells all kinds of things. They sell t-shirts and knickknacks and, uh, you know, basic Hawaii stuff, but that's not what they're known for. Uh, What they're known for is their snow cones. And and if you've ever been to Oahu and if you've ever been into that town of Haleiwa and you've ever been to Matsumoto's and you've had one of their snow cones, you know what I'm talking about. This thing is incredible. Incredible. Now, I get it. In California, we are completely deprived of great snow cones for the most part, all right? It's really hard to get a good snow cone here. Most of our snow cones are essentially glorified slurpees, right? Except without the dome lid. Now, over there at Matsumoto's, here's, I'm, I'm going to describe it for you, okay? Here's what it's like. Imagine You have the cup, okay? And then inside that cup, they take uh, a couple scoops of vanilla ice cream, and they put that in the bottom there. I know, right? <laughs> And then on top of that, they shave the pile of ice and they do it about yay high. And then they take their syrup and they pour that over the top. Okay. And and then after that, and this is the great part, um, they take a can of sweetened condensed milk. Okay. And they drizzle that all over the top. Pause for effect. It is so good. And and, and I promise you, my life was changed the first time I had one. The second time I went, we went there three different times. We traveled all the way across this island just for those snow cones. This last Wednesday, we had a great party for uh, the middle school ministry called Edge Fest, and we invited uh, this company out called uh, Annie Snowbiz, and they make incredible snow cones, and uh, it's probably the best snow cone you can get here in the state of California. And uh, I hadn't had a chance to have one all night long, and at the end of the event, I was going to check on some of the vendors, and Annie's was one of them, so I walk up to her snow cone truck, and I say, hey, how did the night go? And she turns to me, she says, oh, it was wonderful, we enjoyed being here, thank you so much. Did you get a snow cone? And I said, No. She said, would you like one? Yes. She says, okay. And so the guy in the back begins to make the snow cone. I'm watching him pile up the ice and she asks me what flavor I want. And I say, I want root beer and I want vanilla because that sounds delicious. And so, you know, he's pouring the syrups on there and then I watch him take that delicious sweet goodness of uh, sweetened condensed milk and he drizzles that over the top and I get very excited inside. And uh, she hands me this delicious snow cone and I'm walking out and in my head, I start thinking, all right, now we have to go about this the right way. We can't eat it too fast because if we do, we'll get a brain freeze and we won't be able to finish, but we can't eat it too slow because it's hot and it'll melt. And if it melts, then I'm just left with syrup inside of a cup and that's no good. So we have to go about this the right way. So I start eating it. And then I start to notice that around me, all of my volunteers are working really hard as I eat a snow cone and watch teardown happen. And my wife comes up to me and she sees what's in my hand and she says, what's that? I said, it's mine. That's what you need to understand. First of all. selfishness is next week's topic. Don't worry about that. All right. (laughs) And she says, that looks really good. I said, it is good. And so I give her a bite. And the next thing I know she takes it and runs off and I'm left helping everyone else. (laughs) Snow cones are incredible. I love snow cones, but here's the reality about snow cones, the truth of snow cones. And feel free to share this with all your friends. Okay. The truth about snow cones is they're essentially worthless. They, they hold no sustaining value whatsoever. You cannot live off of snow cones. If you tried to live off of snow cones, what would happen is you get about three hours deep into your diet and you would feel absolutely terrible. Why? Because after you eat your snow cone a half hour later, you would feel hungry and want another one. So you'd get another snow cone. And every half hour after that, you'd continue to do the same thing. In about three hours time, you'd have the world's biggest brain freeze, really cold and sticky fingers. You would feel completely sick to your stomach because you've eaten nothing but ice and sugar all day long. Snow cones hold no value whatsoever. And yet for me in my life, I've never once had a snow cone as good as the one at Matsumoto's is. I've never once had a snow cone to where I've looked at it and I've said, this will be the snow cone that ends all others. I shan't want another snow cone so long as I live after this one. no. I have a snow cone and then I'm like, that was so good. I can't wait to do that again. And what's interesting is snow cones are very similar to the comfort that this world offers, isn't it? Very similar. You see, every time we grab onto something for comfort here in this world, we enjoy it for a little while and then all of a sudden it melts and it ends up in the same place that every snow cone ends up, doesn't it? Because all snow cones end up in the same place if you think about it. (laughs) Similarly, the comfort that this world has to offer ends up vanishing just like that. We go and we cling and we grab onto something. And for that moment, we lie to ourselves and we say, now that I have this one thing, I shall be comfortable till all eternity. And a half hour later, we see something new and we want that. And a half hour after that, we want something new and we want that and we want that and we want that and we want that and we keep going and going and going and going. And sooner or later, we end up in the same place as we would if we had a diet of nothing but snow cones. We end up feeling sick. We end up feeling empty and wondering why we can't get that satisfaction like we once thought we could. See, the comfort this world has to offer acts the same way as a snow cone because it's short lived. It ends up with the same fate regardless of its worldly value and no comfort this world has to offer will ever cause us to never want more. See, I'd love to tell you that when I'm in need of comfort, I like to go and and find my bike, you know, and I get on my road bike and I strap my helmet on and I grab my my iPod and I plug my headphones into some great worship music like plum. Shameless plug. And I put them into my headphones and I just ride my bike and I pray and I worship and I exercise and I pray and I worship and I exercise. But the truth is I don't do that. (laughs) Clearly. (laughs) You know, I've gained 10 pounds since working here. (laughs) It's terrible. (laughs) I, I don't do that. That's not what I do when I want to feel comfortable. You see, when I'm feeling unloved or unvaluable, you know what I do? I try and do something really impressive. Impressive. So that people will come up to me and say, oh my goodness, you did such a good job. Way to go. And then I feel really good inside about myself. I'm like, I did do a good job, didn't I? But then after a little while, it goes away and I begin to doubt myself again. I think, oh man, I don't, I don't know if I'm really that valuable. I don't know if anyone can really love me. So I go back and I try and do something bigger this time. And I try to do something even bigger so that hopefully the praise will be bigger then. And if the praise is bigger, well, then it's supposed to last longer, right? Only it doesn't. And I need some more. And I keep going back to that. When I feel unloved and I feel unvaluable, I, I, I oftentimes just seek comfort in the praise of others. See, when I want to escape reality, I do other things too. You see, when I want to escape, when I, when I feel like I need a moment away from everything else in life, I don't turn to the scriptures as often as I should. I don't turn to, to falling on my knees and praying before the Lord. You know what I do? I turn to my couch and that faithful remote control that's always on the arm. And I turn that TV on and I start watching football and I escape reality and pretend I'm a football coach because that's something completely unrelated. And certainly I know that the receiver shouldn't have gone that way and he should have gone that way and I should have another job. And then I can escape reality through the construct of TV and I can get away from everything. Furthermore, when I feel like I'm out of control, when I feel like I don't have control over my environment when I when I wonder why and what I need to do and, and why I can't control the fact that my child won't go to bed at a decent hour and I can't sleep and why won't you just sleep? do you not love me and I'm so out of control or when various things in my life come up and the world feels like it's just swirling around me I don't turn to prayer I don't turn to Christ I don't turn to scriptures like I should you know what I do I turn to one thing that I can control And I hop in my car and I start driving and just down the street, there's a beautiful star shining in the sky that's always there and always lit up and so faithful. And I get into that drive-through and I say, I'd like a double bacon Western cheeseburger, please, (laughs) because I may not be able to control life. But I know that when I say I'd like a number nine, that through that magical window will come a delicious bacon cheeseburger and I can control that. And it's silly. It's silly. Because in a brief moment, with one single bite, I feel better, sort of, for a moment. But I'm not in any more control than I was when I first got into that drive-thru. And we all do that. We all do those things We think I need to feel valuable. So I go from relationship to relationship to relationship, never satisfied because I convinced myself that if I can just see that look in that person's eyes, if they would just give me that one look that's portrayed so often in Hollywood movies and I would hear the music in the background, then I would be happy. Then I would be satisfied. Then I would know that I'm lovable and I'm valuable. And we keep chasing those things and we feel like we need to escape. Like we just need to get away. We need to get out of our heads. We need to get out of our minds. We start chasing that bottle because we think the only way I can escape, the only way out of here is through that bottle. I need it because everything else reminds me of the pain, reminds me of the stress, reminds me of the hurt. And when we need control, we turn to things that we feel like we can control. That switch flips and we begin to treat people terribly. Because we feel like we may not be able to control everything, but if we can at least put them lower than us, we'll grab something. And yet time after time after time we find out it doesn't last, does it? It's virtually a snow cone of comfort. Awake. Awake. Awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord, awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. This is a lament, as in psalm forty four twenty three where Israel cries out to God, appealing to his mighty deeds of the past, and how he rescued them from their enemies. Was it not you who cut Rahab into pieces, who pierced the dragon? This is talking about his deliverance, god 's deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? Remember what you did for your people at the Red Sea. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads and shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is the beginning of God's prophecy that Israel will be set free from Babylon and return to their land. Can you imagine living every day knowing that your entire city, everything that you left behind was still in rubble and to hear these words for the first time in years that God is promising you will return, that you will be set free, that you will no longer be a captive. Can you imagine the joy in their hearts at those words? I, says God, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies of the son of man who is made like grass and have forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? God is saying, listen, I am the one who made the heavens and the earth. Who are these people that are trying to destroy you? Why do you fear the ones who die when you are the people of the one who has created everything? Why are you so afraid of this life when the one who loves you, who comforts you, who cares for you is the one who made everything? Verse 14, he who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit. Neither shall his bread be lacking. I am the Lord, your God, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people again and again and again. In this passage, God reminds us of his comforting truth. I am your God. You are my people. And I guarantee you, there are people in this room this morning that needed to hear that right there. I am your God. You are my people. No matter where you're at in your life right now, understand this, that God sees you. He sees the pain, the hurt, the troubles, the trials. And he says, listen, I am still your God and you are still my people. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. There is none to guide her. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and the sword. Who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine. Thus says the Lord, the Lord your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. You shall drink no more. And I will put it into the hand of your tormentors, who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. And you have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. See, over the course of Jerusalem being taken, as we kind of discussed earlier, many of the sons and young men had been killed and they were still left there in the streets. God is calling to his people saying, wake up. I'm taking my cup of wrath away from you. I am now going to hand it to those who tormented you. Get ready because I am taking you out of here. Awake. Awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall be no more come into you, the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Israel was to wake up because their exile was almost through. God would bring them out to rebuild their city. He says, shake yourself from the dust and arise. You see, it was common and customary when you were in a time of mourning to be covered in dust, to be covered in ripped and torn clothes. And God says, take those off, put on new garments because we are about to march out of here and rebuild this city that there would be joy and singing again. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. See, when I read this verse, it speaks more to me than just about the Israelite return to Jerusalem. This verse speaks about us being redeemed, not with money or goods, but through the very blood of Jesus Christ. See, God purchased us for a price, but it wasn't with money. He paid for us through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. For thus says the Lord God. My people went down at first into Egypt to sojourn there and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now, therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord. Seeing that my people are taken away for nothing, their rulers wail, declares the Lord. And continually all day, my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How interesting is it that in times of our greatest need and discomfort, we end up running from God and head straight into the things we use to cover ourselves with. We run to television, social media, or distraction. We bury ourselves in work or our children or our homes. We shop our way through, eat our way out, or crave the approval of others in hopes that we would find lasting comfort. And yet it's in those same moments that God sees his people hurting. He sees us sitting and crying with our hands in the air and our eyes closed and tears streaming down our face. And it's in those moments that God is saying, here I am. I am your God. You are my people. See, God will always give us the option. You can run and cover yourself up just as Adam and Eve did in the garden. You can try it on your own. Certainly that's your option. You can cover yourself with leaves and stuff that won't last looking for some sense of comfort or you can run to him. You can answer his call and know that when you look for him, he will always say, here I am because God will never miss the chance to be your comfort. We close with this passage. And a few thoughts, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news. And this is the predecessor to one of my favorite verses in Romans, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns the voice of your watchmen; They lift up their voice together. They sing for joy for eye to eye. They see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go from here. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord, for you shall not go out in haste and you shall not go out in flight for the Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. God tells his people, don't take anything that is unclean with you. You don't need it and it won't last. Don't worry about running this time because it's not going to be like it was when we left Egypt. This time I'm going in front of you and behind you and we are walking out of here in victory. So I say to you today, church, when you leave this place, let it go. Leave the thing here that used to be your comfort. Because your comforter is here. Imagine what it would look like to the heavenly hosts if everyone here dropped and left the things that we cling so tightly to, hoping that it would be our great comfort. If in this room there was left a symbolic pile of stuff, And instead of running out of here for fear that we may go back and grab it again, we leave it there and we walk out knowing that God is before us and he is behind us and we are walking out under his banner, claiming victory, victory over everything else that we used to take comfort in victory over all our pains, knowing that he is our great comforter and we have him always. What would that be like? Don't run any longer from the God who is calling you out and calling out to you, where are you? But walk in victory. The God who saves has redeemed you through the blood of Jesus Christ. And I have good news. Regardless of where you are at right now, there is a God who is desperate to be your comfort. Because when you feel ashamed or forgotten or broken or oppressed, or held captive by the things this world promises will be a comfort to you, he is your God and you are his people. God will be your comfort. The question is, will you rest in him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Jesus, as your church, as your bride, we let go. We drop everything here at your feet and we let it go. We give you all this stuff. The things that we used to claim that we thought would bring us comfort, but ended up just like those snow cones melting and leaving us wanting more. God, we leave those here because we understand that you have never once left us wanting more. God, our great comfort is in you. You've never promised a comfortable life, but you have promised that in this life, we will always have a comforter. we praise you for that. So Jesus, when we walk through those doors, would we walk out unhindered? Would we walk out free? Would we walk out with our heads held high, waving your banner, knowing that you have gone before us and behind us? And in you, there is victory. Jesus, we praise you. We love you. We thank you in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, today our closing challenge is this. What do you turn to in your life for instant comfort, relaxation, or escapism? This week, choose God instead of that. Pray, read the Bible, get on your bike, put in your earphones and listen to worship music as you pray and let's all get healthy together, spiritually and physically, amen? Amen, thank you.